you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 22 of Revelation 3 this morning, which will conclude for us a study that we've been engaged in as a church over the last 16 months titled Christ Above All. It's been a thrilling roller coaster of a study, for me at least, as we've examined the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ over creation, redemption, the church, and all things. It's a study that's shown us that Christ is first supreme. He is the Lord, the invisible God made visible, the prototokos of all creation, the creator, the sustainer of all things, the head of the body, the church, the catalyst of redemption, the fullness of God in human flesh. Christ is supreme, and we saw a second that Christ is sufficient. He is the only one in whom redemption, reconciliation to God, righteousness, regeneration, freedom, forgiveness, fullness, victory, peace, joy, hope, love, and all that comes from God. It comes through Christ alone. Christ alone above all. Christ is supreme and He is sufficient. He is the preeminent one and therefore He is to be preeminent over our actions, our ambitions, and our affections. Jesus is to be the center and focus of our lives. Even as He is the center and focus of all creation and of history itself. Now the problem is if we're not careful, such a statement like this can become a truism. It can be viewed as something that is so obvious it no longer seems important anymore. In a supreme sense of irony, the call of Christ above all can be perceived as something so obvious that it is overlooked and is simply assumed to be rightly understood and already applied. Perhaps that might be some of you this morning. You might be sitting here thinking, well, of course Jesus is supposed to be the center and focus of our lives. Duh, I've got that covered. Tell me something I don't know, Pastor. If we're not careful, we can assume that we're living out the principles of Christ above all, when in reality we're not. How do I know that that's a danger? Because of the passage that we've been looking at as a church over the last three and four weeks. Because the passage we're studying here in Revelation chapter 3 tells us that it can happen. You see, all these truths that I just talked about, that we studied for nearly 16 months in the book of Colossians, was delivered not only to the church in Colossae, but also to the church in Laodicea, Colossae's nearby sister city. The only problem is, the believers in Laodicea did not listen to the message when it was given. Though Christ above all might have been on their doctrinal statement, it was not seen in their lives or imprinted in their hearts. They professed Christ above all with their mouths, but they denied that very same message with their daily lives. And so, 30 years later, Christ writes this letter of love to those he had bought with his own blood to the Laodiceans there in Revelation chapter 3, returning to many of the same truths that he first shared with them three decades earlier. And he calls on them once again to repent and to return to him as Lord of their lives and supreme object of their affections. That letter began in verse 14 of Revelation 3 where Jesus reminds the church of their assessor of how he is the only one who knows and can rightly examine their hearts. He reminds them, just as he did to the Colossians, that he was the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In other words, Jesus is the only one uniquely positioned to see our true spiritual state and give us the counsel that our souls require. And then we saw in verses 15-17, through the church's ailment. 
Jesus tells the Laodiceans that they become spiritually stagnant beneath a wretched sense of self-sufficiency. Having taken their eyes off of Christ and the immeasurable riches of His grace and instead concentrating on the spiritual poverty that they perceived in the lives of those around them, they had actually come to believe that they were rich, that they were prosperous, and they were in need of nothing from Christ. And even though Jesus knew them to be apart from Him and apart from His grace, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, they saw themselves as spiritually self-sufficient. And thus, having lost an acute sense of their own need for Christ, they had ceased to share Christ with others. They had become spiritually stagnant in their self-sufficiency. Lukewarm, Jesus says in verse 16, of no eternal spiritual benefit to others at all. And so Jesus says, because you've drifted so far from me that you are neither a healing influence to the lost or an enlivening influence to the saved, I'm ready to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, I am ready to close up this church and send people off to greener pastures of the gospel of grace so that they can hear my word and follow me more faithfully. So why would Christ do that? The answer is because he loves his people. And he longs for their true, real, deep fellowship far too much to allow them to continue in a condition of such wretched, stagnant self-sufficiency. And so, out of that love for his people, Jesus gives in verses 18 through 19, as we saw last week, the church's answer. In other words, how can those believers repent and turn from their lifestyle of self-sufficiency back to a life of closer fellowship with Jesus? And the answer was surprisingly simple. It was, come to Christ. You don't have to jump through a five-step process before you can be restored to fellowship with them. You don't need to reform your life or perform acts of penance or prove to God how sorry you are for how you've been living your life. No matter how far away from Jesus Christ you are this morning, the moment Christ opens your eyes to perceive your need for Him, all you must do is come. He's not angry with you. He loves you. So come to Him in faith and receive from Him the reliable riches the true transformation and the accurate awareness that your soul requires. Christ is all you need. So just come. That is the answer. Just come. Which brings us at last to date of verses 20 through 22, which is the church's awards, where Jesus lays out the motivation for why we as believers ought to come to Christ. And indeed, why we ought to desire to come to Him. And why we ought to be drawn to fellowship with Jesus Christ. So the church's assessor, the church's ailment, the church's answer, and the church's awards. With that in mind, let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. The Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, these words for us today. And to the church, and to the angel of the church, in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God who gives understanding to His servants that we might know His testimonies. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. For how it shows us the glory and grace that can only belong to You. It can only be seen in Jesus Christ. We thank You for how we continually catch fresh glimpses of You and Your Word. And this makes it sweeter to our mouth than honey from the honeycomb. More precious than gold or silver refined seven times over. We thank You that You have not left us like blind men in this world. You have opened our eyes in faith and that You have given us Your Spirit to understand Your Word that we might know You and love You and fellowship with You as You desire. Do a work in our hearts this morning by Your grace that Christ might reign supreme in our lives beginning in our hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after Jesus tells the Laodiceans of their assessor, their ailment, and their answer, to come to Him and to find the reliable riches, true transformation, and accurate awareness that they so desperately needed, He then lays out for them the church's awards. Verses 20-22, through and really the first reason Jesus gives to those believers who are why they should come to Him, It's actually seen back in verse 19, which we touched on last week. We ought to come to Christ, and we ought to find in Him alone, above all, the reliable riches, true transformation, and accurate awareness that we need. Because when we come to Christ, we get to know the love of Christ. And that's in verse 19, where it says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is why we as believers ought to be drawn to both come to Christ and to return to Him no matter our spiritual condition. It is because of the ever-present truth that Jesus loves you. 
And His love is first of all a love that has been displayed. Galatians 2.20 says that the, that, the, that the Son of God loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5.2 says that Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. And Revelation 1.5 says that Jesus Christ loved us and has freed us from our sins by His own blood. You see, Jesus wrote the very first letter of His love towards us in His own blood. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love that Jesus has for you is a love that has been displayed. If you doubt Christ's love for you today, look to the cross. Look to the cross. The love that Jesus has for you is a love that's been displayed. Second, Christ's love is a love that's beyond description. Ephesians 3.19 says that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge. That is, it passes beyond any description of breadth or length or height nor depth. To put it another way, Christ's love for His people is beyond the capacity of any frail human tongue or mouth to understand, grasp, or articulate. In fact, when Paul himself tries to do so in Romans chapter 8, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is what it sounds like. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul cannot get a handle on how much Christ loves him and us. The love that Jesus has for you as His own is a love that's been displayed and it is a love that's beyond description. Believer, you ought to be drawn to both come to Christ and to return to Him because Jesus will always and ever and only love you. Song of Solomon 8, verse 6 anticipates you are set like a seal upon his heart, like a seal upon his arm. His love for you is as strong as death and his jealousy as fierce as the grave. His love burns for you like flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. See, it doesn't matter how far you have drifted away from Jesus. It doesn't matter how lukewarm you have become, how much you have dabbled with sin and returned to that which brings you shame. Jesus loves you, this I know, because the Bible tells you so. As Jeremiah 31 verse 3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So hear His voice, O you His people today. And come to Christ. Come to Christ. Don't let your sin keep you from Him. He has already paid the price. So come to Christ. Now someone might be thinking at this point, well, hold on, Pastor. Jesus just took people who had a high sense of self-esteem who thought themselves rich, prosperous, and in need of nothing. And he just verbally stripped them down to nothing and told them that they were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How is that loving? He's destroyed their self-esteem. Or perhaps more pertinently, you might be asking this morning, I was doing just fine, Pastor, living on my own, and now God has made my life absolutely miserable. 
Everywhere I turn, things are falling apart. How is that loving? The answer is, it's loving because your sense of spiritual fullness and satisfaction had nothing to do with Christ, who can alone bring you those things. You cannot blame God for your life that empty cisterns that hold no water prove to be empty cisterns that hold no water. They will always fail you. They will never bring you lasting freedom or fulfillment. Only Jesus can. And it is by removing from you these other affections and ambitions that God is drawing you back to the only one that can bring you freedom, satisfaction, and fulfillment to your soul. And that is Jesus Christ alone. He is the vine. You are the branches. As Augustine once wrote, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. And that's why Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. By stripping away our false sense of self-sufficiency through trials and temptations or through frustrations and, and failures, Christ is bringing us back to the true place of satisfaction and fullness by bringing us back to Himself. That is the most loving thing He can do. If Jesus didn't love you, and you know what He'd do? He wouldn't reprove or discipline you. He wouldn't reprove or discipline you. You know, there's only two children in this church that I, well, there's now three, I guess, soon to be three, that I reprove and discipline. doesn't matter how bad your kids are. Your kids are. I'll never discipline your kids. I'll only discipline my own. Why? Because they belong to me. And I love them. It's exactly why Jesus reproves and disciplines us when we go astray. Because we belong to Him. And He loves us. If He wasn't to do that, if He didn't love you, He wouldn't reprove or discipline you. He'd just let you drift further and further away from Him and further and further into sin. As Hebrews 12, verse 8 says, if you are left without discipline, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. By the way, I was talking about you know parental discipline. Church discipline, absolutely. But parental Anyway, you know what I'm saying. But praise God, right? Praise God. When we start to drift away from Christ, He doesn't stand far off. He says, no, that one belongs to me. I paid for him. I have set my love on him. I will bring him home. Jesus has a jealous love for His people. He shows us that We are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He shows us our need for Him, and then in love He calls us back to Himself to find in Him the reliable riches, true transformation, and accurate awareness that we need. Jesus only disciplines those He loves. He only reproves those He cares about. And Therefore, praise God when you are shown your need for Him. Praise God when you do fall flat on your face. Praise God when you do fail and you all of a sudden realize, oh my goodness, I have been neglecting the Lord. Because that shows you He loves you. He loves you. You are in the very center of His never-ending love. Therefore, praise God, be zealous, and repent. That's the first motivation. First motivation, we ought to come to Christ, and we ought to find in Him the reliable riches, true transformation, and accurate awareness that we need, because when we come to Him, we know in that moment His love. That He loves us, and always has. The first award of those who comes to Christ is knowing the love of Christ. Knowing the love of Christ that He has for us. The second award of those who come to Christ is enjoying the communion of Christ. That's in verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, 
I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Notice how Jesus begins here. He says in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. In other words, look at this. This is a surprising thing. Jesus stands at the door and he is knocking. See, it's not that Jesus loves you so much that he keeps the door open for you, waiting for you to return. It's that he loves you so much that he's the one who's come to you and he's calling on you to open the door for him. That's his love. Think about that. If you've drifted away from fellowship with Christ because of a twisted sense of self-sufficiency, and you've come to realize and recognize your desperate need for Him, take heart, believer. It's not that there's a process you need to follow to come to Him. He's already here. He's ready to mend that relationship. See, Jesus is not like an offended relation that you might have in your life. Calloused, distant, aloof. No, Jesus is like the fervent lover in pursuit of His love. He's outside your window. He's climbing over your fence. He's calling out your name. He's throwing pebbles at your window so that you would come out to be with Him. To get our attention. So though you may have turned your back on Him in times of past and pushed Him outside, Jesus in love has taken His stand at your door and through the circumstances of your life, He is knocking. This is how, who God always is, is it not? Throughout all Scripture, what do you see? You see God seeking after man. Adam and Eve sinned. Who goes searching for them in the garden? God does. Abraham, father of faith. What is he doing before God comes? Worshiping idols in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then God comes to him. What was Paul doing? Going to kill the church till Jesus comes and knocks him off his horse. Guess what you were doing? Seeking after the things of this world in love with the things that lead to death. And God came for you. He is the pursuer. And He doesn't let up His pursuit. He loves you. How remarkable is this that's talked about here? He who is all rich comes to the lodging of a beggar and freely offers His grace as an expression of His love. And he does more than simply call. He seeks. Jesus is seeking after you. What a wonderful condescension. As the beginning of God's creation, you could think about it, Jesus could have simply broken the door down, couldn't he? In fact, historians record that's exactly what Roman soldiers would do to the wealthy residents of Laodicea. They would force themselves into the homes of of the physically wealthy in order to take. But here, Jesus knocks at the door of the spiritually bankrupt in order to give. Why? Because Jesus wants so much more from our relationship with Him than just an exchange of goods. Right? So often we think this, don't we? In fact, we almost con- we confine our relationship to Christ to merely that. An exchange of goods. My sin for His righteousness. And while that is indeed true, Jesus wants so much more than that. He desires fellowship. He wants a relationship. He wants to be with you and him to he wants you to be with him and him to be with you in close communion and intimate fellowship. In fact, that is why Christ died on the cross. That is why he exchanged our sin for his righteousness. It was so that we as Ephesians 2:13 says who were far off might be brought near by the blood of the cross. 
Christ died in order to bring us into a vital and vibrant relationship with Him that's been enjoyed, that fellowship that's been enjoyed among the Godhead for all of eternity. As 1 Corinthians 1.9 says, we have been called, listen to this, we have been called into the fellowship of God's Son. Did you hear that? In other words, the state of our salvation is to be a state of fellowship with Christ. That is what it means to be saved. The implications of this are simply enormous when you think about it. It means that we most fulfill our calling as Christians. We most fulfill our calling as Christians, not when we are doing, but when we are enjoying fellowship with Christ. Did you hear what I just said? That will transform your life. You most fulfill your calling as a Christian, not merely when you are doing, but ultimately when you are enjoying fellowship with Christ. For that is why He died. That is why He died. It's just like, as I was reminded last week, of Jesus when He was talking to busy Martha in Luke chapter 10. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but only one thing is necessary. Mary, who was sitting at Jesus' feet at that moment, she has chosen the good portion, which shall not pass away. The call of our salvation is a call into the fellowship of God's Son, and therefore we as Christians most fulfill our essential calling, not by doing, but by enjoying fellowship with Christ. As John Piper so aptly expressed it, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. What our heart most greatly requires and what Christ most greatly desires is fellowship. What have you been making your Christian life to be? It comes down to this. Fellowship with Christ. Communion with Him. He wants to tell you about His love for you. He wants to hear that you love Him. It's what He wants. So He's standing at the door and He's knocking. And through His Word, He's calling out today, if anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into Him and eat with Him and He with Me. Jesus here is drawing upon one of the most intimate experiences of fellowship that was enjoyed in the ancient world at that time. See, Greeks had three meals Uh, had three meals a day just like us, and the most important meal was the evening meal when friends and family members would return home from their day of labor and work, and they would kick off their sandals, not their shoes, to relax, sit back, linger, and share in the warm glow of candlelight their various experiences and thoughts for the day. This is the picture that Jesus is picturing here, is painting here to those who are caught up in stagnant self-sufficiency, and his intention is crystal clear. Jesus is offering to us here a warm and living communion with Him as we learn to daily spend time with Him in fellowship. In His love, Jesus is drawing you and I away from the deadness of our stagnant self-sufficiency and He is wooing us towards an open, warm, and intimate communion with Him in the innermost chamber of our hearts. No matter how long it has been, Jesus is offering to you today an instant return to earnest, open, and rich relationship with Him. Just as He offered His disciples in John 14, 21-23, which we read this morning, He who loves Me will be loved by My Father, and I will love Him and manifest Myself to Him. If anyone loves Me, He will keep My word, and My Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. See, we don't even have to bring anything to the table. 
Look at what Jesus is saying here. When it comes to Christ, the guest becomes the host. He brings the meal to be enjoyed. We just have to open the door to Him. Read His Word. Share our hearts with Him in prayer. Rely on Christ's strength and not our own resources. Rely on Christ's work and not our own righteousness. Rely on Christ's truth and not our own insights or opinions. Rely on Christ alone above all and not ourselves. And if we will do that, Jesus promises that He will come into us, lay out a rich feast of reliable riches, true transformation, and accurate awareness, and He will commune with us in a rich and intimate fellowship. All we have to do is give Him the time to open the door and let Him in. You know, this promise becomes even more remarkable as I was thinking about it this week, when we consider that there is a day coming in which our communion with Christ will culminate in what is called in Scripture the Great Marriage Supper of the Lamb, talked about in Revelation 19, 6-9. This is the only other time we talk about eating together in Revelation. This is when we as believers, clothed with fine linen, white and pure, will enjoy a great feast of celebration in the presence of Christ Himself in glory. When we will celebrate the fact that we are at last with Him, and we see His face, and we will at last be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is forever with the Lord. That is going to be a day of rejoicing. Well, Jesus is saying here, you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait. Commune with me now. Open up the door. Let my words dwell in you richly. And I will sup with you in such deep communion. It will only be climaxed. It can only be climaxed with the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can have such deep fellowship with Christ in this world, believer, that can only be climaxed by the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can I tell you, as I thought about that one truth this week, I have to admit, just like Job in Job 42, verse 3, I speak of things I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me that I do not know. Now, to be clear, I do know fellowship with Christ in part. And I understand fellowship with Christ in part, but not in fullness. Not as it's described here. One day I will when I sit with Christ in glory and then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. But until that day, I hear Christ's blessed call in this passage to me. And I strive to move from into a fuller and deeper communion with Him even now from one degree of glory into another. I want this. I want this. Oh, that I might know Christ as Paul says in Philippians. This is our motivation to awaken from the stupor of stagnant self-sufficiency and come to Christ. It is because when I come to Him, when I open the door to Him in the mornings, or in the evenings, or in the afternoons, He Himself comes, and He eats with me, and I with Him. And there in the secret place, I enjoy communion with my Lord and Savior. No matter how far I've drifted, no matter how far I've pushed Christ away, All I must do is come. Open my heart to Him in faith. And I will experience the awards mentioned here. He's only a prayer away. The awards mentioned here of knowing the love of Christ, enjoying 
the communion of Christ, and finally the third award of those who hear Christ's voice and come to Him is this. Sharing the glory of Christ. Jesus says here, to one who conquers, in other words, to the one who overcomes the allure, the comfort of stagnant self-sufficiency and learns to rely and commune with me above all, to the one who lets me into that most deep and intimate room of the heart and of the affections, to this one, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. Think about that. If the previous promise of communion with Christ did not blow your mind, think on that one for a while, and this one should. For consider, if you give your life to Rome, if you give your life to the things of this world, you might gain influence for a time. But mark my words, Caesar will never share his throne with you. He will never share his throne with anyone. But here Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. See, Jesus is so exalted. He is so transcendent. He is so glorious overall that he is not threatened by any rivals. He is not concerned to protect his own influence. Christ is so secure in his supremacy and in his sovereignty that he can share his very throne. No one compares to Jesus. He is matchless. He is marvelous. He is majestic. We can trust in Him. He will never, ever let us down. And to the one who recognizes and exalts His supremacy and sufficiency in their lives, to the one who relies on Christ above all and not on themselves, He will share Christ's very throne. You sit there and say, okay, cool. Well, if you don't know what that throne looks like, look at the next two chapters in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 through 5. And it will take your breath away. There is no greater, no more majestic, no more breathtaking scene than that of the risen Lamb who is seated on the throne, surrounded by adoring angels and blinding glory and the thunder of praises from all things created in heaven and on earth. This is the throne. This is the throne, the glory that Christ promises here. To share with you. If you will but hear his voice, open the door and enter into a relationship with him today and fellowship with him. This is the throne. This is the glory that Christ promises to share. And, and again, to whom does Christ promise this? To whom does Christ give this promise? He gives it to us. He gives it to the lowest of the low. To the very people that Jesus Christ said, I am ready to spit you out of my mouth. To those very people, Christ promises, if you'll come, you can sit with me on my throne. This is grace. The highest place is within the reach of the lowest person if they will but come to Christ in faith. Not just for a moment, And not just for an exchange of goods for sin to righteousness, but to come to Christ to enjoy fellowship with Him and to rely on His grace for all eternity. To the one who conquers, I will grant Him to sit with me on my throne 
as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just to Laodicea, but to us. This is for us. If we will but come to Christ when He knocks on our door, if we will but come to Christ when we are shown that we are standing in desperate need of Him, if we will but hear the faithful and true witness calling to us in His Word and daily open the door in fellowship with Him, He promises to come into us, to lay out a rich feast of reliable resources, true transformation, and accurate awareness, and there in fellowship with Him, over a rich feast of grace that He daily provides, we will know, day by day, the love of Christ, enjoy the communion of Christ, and one day enter into and share in the very glory of Christ forever. So as the hymn writer wrote, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. You will never outgrow your need for Jesus. Repent of stagnant self-sufficiency. Open the door, and He will come in. And He is all you need. This is the necessity of Christ above all. And this is the Word of God. From Revelation 3, 14-22, which I now commit to your further study, our further study, and faithful obedience until he who is knocking at the door, Christ above all, returns. To that end, let's pray. Father, we confess that we have nothing that we have not received. All we have is Christ. And we confess to you that over this last week we have continued into days far too much under a spirit of stagnant self-sufficiency. that we have looked at ourselves in terms of the challenges of the day and thought to ourselves, I am rich, I am prosperous, and I need nothing. Not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked apart from you. We pray, Father, this morning, that you would save us from the death and the drought of stagnant self-sufficiency. Pray that you would make us to be a people who daily draw from, depend on, and are devoted to Jesus Christ above all. We pray that you would help us by your grace to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, keep our hearts forever close to him, so that we might be cleansed filled and enlivened 
for your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, above all, in whose name we pray. Amen.